Our sermon text for this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, and you can find this printed on page 7 in your order of worship. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is the word of the Lord. I feel like after a number of moms sing the offertory after their own children's baptism, what else is the preacher going to say? I feel like you guys are all moved by that, and I have no shot for the next half hour, but I will try my best. And I do recognize that you might be a bit surprised that we are already back in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, considering that we just finished a year-long series going through this letter on Easter morning. But as we were going through the letter, it occurred to me, especially when we were in chapter 4 and Shiv was preaching, that we were going through chapter 4 very quickly, and there's five very practical issues that just what we're lightly touched on, and that's when I sort of got the idea that I think maybe we should come back to Ephesians chapter 4 just for five weeks to touch on these five different issues. You know, typically here at Redeemer, we go through sections of Scripture, one main idea at a time, and I think that's the right way to do it. You know, whenever we're reading these, these letters, we need to remember that the original context is that this was just a letter. A letter was delivered to a church in Ephesus, and there was somebody that stood up in a service like I am doing right now, and the person just read the letter. And as somebody was reading the letter, I doubt that the Christians in Ephesus, you know, had out their, you know, their Greek lexicons and commentaries and are checking every tense of the word. No, they're just looking for overall ideas for how they are to grow in their walk with the Lord. And so that's generally what we try and do here at Redeemer. We try not to get so bogged down with the specifics that we lose the main point of what letters or section of Scripture are trying to teach. But there are a few places where it is especially helpful to really slow down. And so that is what we're going to do for the next five weeks. We're going to really slow down and do one verse at a time. If you remember, you can actually go back uh, to the, time, the, the part of the service with confession, and that'll give you the full context for what we are looking at today. So you can go back to page four in your order of worship. You can look at it, and you'll see the, the broader context of Ephesians 4 is about the principle of taking off the old self and putting on Christ. Now, this is the Apostle Paul at the most basic level. This is what we would consider Pauline Theology 101, that all people were born into sin, that we have a sin nature. It's not just that we've done a few sinful things, but sin is our nature. It's who we are. It's deeper than our actions. Sin impacts certainly how we act, but also how we think, how we process, how we feel, what we love. That's our nature. Now, Jesus has come. Jesus, who is like us in every way, he's a real man, real flesh and blood. He has feelings. He has emotions. He has a real body. He's like us in every way except for one very important difference. Jesus does not share in our fallen nature. Jesus remains free from the stain of sin. He is like us but different in one very important way. And the heart of the gospel is that you can either stay in your old flesh or you can turn to the sinless Savior. You can either live under Adam, who shares in our nature, or you can live in Jesus, 
who is pure and free. The heart of the gospel is repentance, which is to turn away from your old way, faith, which is to turn to Jesus. That's Paul at the most basic level. And that's essentially what he is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, just with a different image in mind. You can either wear your old clothes that are dirty and filthy and full of sin and shame, or you can take off those clothes and you can put on the clothes of Jesus, who's pure and bright and holy. When I was in college, I worked as a landscaper during my summer vacations, and it was landscaping, it's a tough job. You're outside all day long, often would work 14-hour days, just outside, you're, you're sweaty, you're working hard. And whenever I would come home, my mom would always say, John, you stink, you smell, you're not allowed into the dining room or into the living room until you go upstairs and you take a shower. Just the, the smell of oil from the lawnmowers and sweat and dirt was just caked into to my skin. Mom said, you stink, go change. So I would go upstairs, take a shower, put on some clean clothes, and then, as a clean young man, then I was welcomed down into the living room. I needed to take off the old and put on the new. That's the gospel. Turn away from the old self, dirt, sin, shame, you stink. Turn to Jesus, and he's going to clean you up. It's actually what we just saw in baptism. The, the, the image of baptism is the washing away of dirt, the washing away of the old way so that we might live in the cleanliness of Jesus. And now that you have these new clothes, the most basic discipline of the Christian life is to live into what God has declared you to be. See, that, that, that's how we change. And this is very different than legalism. Legalism has no room for grace. Legalism says, you're dirty, you clean up yourself. Your position before God depends on you. You're dirty, you better clean yourself up, you better fix up your life, you better get those new clothes on by your own merit and effort. No, that is not the gospel, and there is zero room for that in the church. But no, the gospel is Jesus has given you the new clothes. He's declared you to be righteous. He's declared you to be clean. Now, live into what God has declared you to be. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 are that there are five specific areas that God wants us by grace to live into. So our verse for today is verse 25. God wants us to live into the truth. We'll see next week. God wants us to be angry, but only for the right reasons. From verse 28, there's a word on work. Verse 29, speech. And we're going to close out this little mini-series looking at Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 30 on kindness. There's five messages, all that are based on one verse. A few years ago, a, a very sweet Redeemer member, I won't tell you who, but she told me after the service, John, I am so shocked that you're able to talk for so long on one verse. I don't know if that was a compliment, uh, but that, that is the plan. That is the plan for the next five weeks. Five one-verse sermons, and so if you are the Scripture reader, you have an easy job. And after those five weeks of labor, we'll do a few psalms, just kind of bounce around the psalms to close out the summer. And then the week after Labor Day, we'll start a much longer series going through First Samuel. But for today, one verse, verse 25, it's very straightforward, that you are to take off 
falsehood, falsehood, deceit, that's your old identity, that's the dirt of your old life. And now you are to put on the clothes of Christ, which means you are to speak the truth. One of the ways that we are to put on Christ and his clean clothes is that we must become a people committed to speaking the truth. Three points for this morning. Truth as broadly understood, truth individually applied, and then third and finally, truth that is graciously extended. Let's take each one at a time. Number one, truth, broadly understood. Truth. What is the truth? It's the highest of all philosophical questions. It's really the question of all questions. Truth, according to Plato, is universal. Truth, according to Foucault, is relative, but it is the highest of all questions. It is the aim of all science, it is the aim of all religion. What is the truth? Now, for most generations in the history of the world, it was understood that truth was fixed, that truth is out there, it is worth knowing, it's desirable. Truth is not in us, but truth is out in the world, and we need to find it. And if you could find the truth, then you would be an enlightened man and an enlightened woman, and you would have knowledge. That's philosophy, the love of wisdom, the love of knowledge. Now, in the last century, the conversation shifted. Truth was no longer out there, but truth was in here. You see, truth was conditional, conditioned by your experience growing up or your, your culture or the decade in which you lived. And so truth started to become very relative. I remember talking with college students at Michigan State in the early 2000s, and they, they would say, it, it is okay, John, that you say Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm saying Jesus is not the Son of God, and we're both right. I thought, well, that makes no, no sense to me. That, that's an illogical statement. Multiple truths it's not truth. If there are multiple takes on what the truth is, then at best we have opinions or hopes or aspirations. That was really the 90s and the 2000s. But the conversation has shifted again. Since Obergefell, the conversation has moved. My sense is that we are at the beginning of a very seismic change in our culture for how people understand the truth. Truth is no longer seen as relative, but now if you claim to understand the truth, the cultural understanding is that you are a dangerous person, that truth is a tool that is used to oppress, that truth is dangerous. I know some scientists, I am not a scientist, but I think it is across the board true that males have the XY chromosome and females are XX. But when you state what is scientifically true ought to determine the path that is before you, that truth ought to shape you, you conform to what the truth is. If you state that, you are now seen as a very oppressive and abusive person. But again, this new cultural take makes very little sense. If there is something called truth, we ought to embrace it, not run from it, and we ought to build our lives on it, not shun it. See, truth is what holds everything together. And so, yes, there are very modern takes on truth, people that run from it, people that deny it, people that even say it's relative. 
But ultimately, everybody lives according to this internal understanding that there is a truth in this world. If you want law, if you want order, if you want beauty, if you want justice, if you want to be a scientist, all of that depends on an understanding that there is something called truth. You get rid of that, we just fall into a meaningless world. And very few people live without a telos, an end, a purpose to their lives or even a purpose to this world. See, God is truth and His Word matters. God and His Word says that men and women are made in God's image, worthy of respect and life. God says there is a clear difference between what is good and what is evil. God's standard provides the framework for injustice. So many people are blaming the church for all various forms of injustice. Some of it is fair, a lot of it is not. But what they fail to understand is that without the church's understanding of justice, there would never be a category for injustice. You see, people live according to a a, a false understanding of what truth is. Without transcendent truths that are made possible by God, it would be impossible to have any sort of clarity for how the world ought to be run. So as we put on the new clothes of Christ, we must become a people committed to the truth. I was listening to a, a podcast recently that was interviewing Abigail Favalli. She's a, a professor at Notre Dame. She's a devout Catholic. But for a season of her life, before she came back to, to Notre Dame to teach, she spent her, her upper academic life writing her dissertation, dissertation on gender studies. And there's all kinds of just goofy things in that field. And, and Abigail, as she's tidy, typing her PhD, this is a brilliant woman getting her PhD that's going to get her to, to Notre Dame. She admitted that as she was writing her dissertation, she just was making stuff up. Things that can't be scientifically tested, things that are even illogical. Assistant, she said, I'm just kind of making it up. But the more made up and more fairy tale ish it sounds, that's actually how you get academic credentials and get the better positions at the elite universities. Now, thankfully, she's walked away from all that and she is back uh, teaching and, and, and back with the Lord. But sadly, that kind of thinking has permeated the culture that doesn't matter if it's true or not, as long as it sells, as long as it makes me feel good, I'm going to do it. And what Paul is telling us here is that we must do better. There is truth and we must be committed to it. Number two, and, and what we're doing is we're going to start very broad this morning and then we're going to distill it all down to one specific takeaway. So now we're, we're coming into point two. Truth individually applied. So Christianity, of course, claims that there is, yes, of course, a truth. That there are transcendent truths. Because there is a God who is transcendent, there is truth. That truth has existed in all times and in all places. Doesn't matter if it's the first century. Doesn't matter if it's 2023. Doesn't matter if you're in Detroit or if you're in China. Truth is truth because God is God. And the good news of the gospel is not that we need to climb the ladder of philosophy to find the truth, but rather that truth has come down and found us. That's the gospel, that Jesus came to us. Think of Plato's very famous allegory of the cave. There's the prisoners, they're in their chains, they're looking at the wall of a cave. Behind them, there's 
There's forms, substances that are moving, but all the prisoners can see are the shadows dancing on the wall. So Plato's takeaway is that there is truth in the world, but all that we can see as humans, all we can see are the shadows. So we can make very educated guesses on what truth is. A shadow can can show you something, can give you something of the the basic movements or contours or size. A shadow can show you something, but there must be a, a real humility in declaring what the truth is, because ultimately, all that we can see are the shadows. So that is Plato's main takeaway, that there ought to be a humility in declaring what truth is. But here's where Plato falls short. In the gospel, the shadows took on flesh. The shadows actually become like one of the prisoners. The shadow became a man and says, not just hypothetically what truth could be, but if the shadow took on the substance and the shadow can actually talk, then we know for absolute certainty what the truth is. You see, that's the incarnation. That's the gospel. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I as a shadow, took on the flesh, and I am now declaring to you so that you might know for certain what the truth is. Jesus is the truth as a person. If we were to hold that, there is a transcendent truth named God. God is truth, and Jesus is of the exact same substance as the Father. And so if he takes on flesh, he can tell you exactly what truth is. And so Plato says, you know, there's shadows you can look at, you can make some really good guesses. But in Christianity, the shadow takes on flesh so that we can know for certain, we can have confidence in being a people of the truth because Jesus tells us exactly what the truth is. Now here's where the rubber, rubber really begins to meet the road in Ephesians 4. There is truth. His name is Jesus. We are to put on the truth of Jesus. We are to wear his clothes. Now, what does that actually mean for your life? Now that you have, by grace, the privilege of knowing truth, by grace you've been saved, by grace you've put on the clothes of Jesus, by grace, not because of your intelligence, because of your smarts, because of your classical education, whatever, you you are saved by grace. You're not saved by your philosophy. You're saved by grace. But now that you know the truth, what is the practical implication? Look with me very carefully at verse 25. Notice that Paul is not talking about truth here at the highest level of philosophical debate. He's talking about truth in reference to how we care for other people. Look carefully at the verse. Put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor. Speak to those who are in the same body, which means specifically to those that are in the body of Christ, the church. See, see what Paul is saying here is that truth ought to bring people together. What is false rips people apart, but truth, when it is handled properly, is a tool to unite, not divide. Think of the very first sin. You have the, the serpent that's deceived Adam and Eve. The serpent has said, did, did, did God really say it that way? 
It's deception. It's false. And Adam and Eve were deceived. And they ate the fruit. And as soon as falsehood is brought into the world, the relationship between God and man is now going to be forever hindered until Jesus makes it better. There's friction between God and man because of falsehood. There's also friction between Adam and Eve and, and marriages and between people and relationships. You see, the conversation here about truth is not just helpful for textbooks, but truth is relational. Falsehood is what brings people apart. Truth is what brings people back together in harmony. We all admit that because we live in an age where truth is very flexible, it's, just, it's, it's very normal to put people down so that you can promote the self, to, to live in falsity. It's how politicians run for office and we champion them. Political debates today are not about promoting your own ideas about how society could get better. We just bash the other person. It's enough people apart. But for those that are wearing the clothes of Jesus, we need to declare what is false and we also need to use truth in such a way that brings people together. I recognize that this is a, a PCA church and a Bible-believing church, and whenever there is a sermon on you, what is the truth? There's, there's a certain temperament that says, ah, that's finally, pastor is giving me the green light to go and be a bulldog for the truth in society, and I'm going to take over cable news, and I'll praise God that Elon Musk has Twitter, because I'm going to go on Twitter, and I'm just going to tell everybody the truth. That's not quite what Paul is saying here. He's saying you need to use truth in such a way that is gentle, that brings people together, that actually brings people to Jesus. We are not into truth just for the sake of truth. We use truth as a way of glorifying God and bringing sinners back to Jesus himself. There is, yes, a time for bold witness in the public square, but that's not quite what Paul has in mind here. The broader context, again, this is going back probably three months now, the broader context of Ephesians chapter 4 is about love and unity in the body. It's about Jews and Gentiles coming back together. It's about the church being built on one singular foundation. It's about people of, of, of different backgrounds in the same church. How do they get along? How do they love? How do they grow together? You see, truth in that context is about unity, not division. Ephesians, one of the great gospel letters in all the Bible, that you're saved by grace, not by works. You're not saved by your philosophy. You're not saved by knowing the truth. You're saved because truth came down and knows you. Therefore, there ought to be a softness. Even as we engage neighbors with the truth, there ought to be a softness in our disposition because we recognize we only know the truth because God graciously has given to us. See, truth ought to unite not divide. Ultimately, the gospel itself depends on two major truth statements. Statement number one, that we have sinned, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a truth statement. And we need to make sure that we're a people of the second truth statement of, as well, a statement of grace that we are justified by Christ as a free gift, that while we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus, we can know God. 
You see, the truth of the gospel is that of both sin and grace. And as we engage our neighbors and as we put on the clothes of Jesus, as we put on the clothes of the gospel, this ought to be our disposition towards the world. It's two statements in the gospel, two truthful statements, sin and grace. So we need, in our disposition, as we are talking to the outside world, we do need to be honest about the reality of sin. That is a true statement. Think of Jesus, at the woman at the well. He didn't just look away from her sin. He says, you don't just have one husband, you've actually been sleeping around with five. He knows that she's sinned. He is honest about her sin. He tells her the truth about her sin. But he never uses the truth of her sin just to beat her down. He uses the truth of her sin so that she might come to realize the better truth of his love and grace for her. He used the truth of guilt to show her the better truth of grace. That's what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 4.25. As you interact with your neighbor, use truth with redemption in mind. You see, that can only happen if you have received the truth of the gospel for yourself. You can only extend to others what you have received for yourself. Therefore, you must take off your dirty clothes. Maybe even right now, you're repenting, Father, I need to take off deception. I need to take off falsehood. I need to take off all the ways that I've been looking down at my neighbors. I need to take off all the ways I've been belittling them and gossiping them and judging them or even. I have told them true things, but in a way that only makes them feel bad. You need to take that off, and you need to put on the clean robes of Jesus. You see, you need to see your sin, and you need to experience gracious truth for yourself if you want to extend it to other people. And the third and final point is we're kind of narrowing down on one specific point of application for this morning. Ephesians 4.25 commands that we would graciously extend truth to other people. See, Christianity is not just an abstract theory to be discussed or intellectually debated. It's much more than that. Christianity is truth in the flesh. That truth became Jesus. And so when you become a Christian, it means that God wants to change the entirety of your flesh. It's actually what we're going to see for the next five weeks, that God by His grace, is going to help you change in the flesh to make you look more like Jesus. And for this morning, one of the ways that He wants to help you change to look more like Jesus is He wants to change how you use the truth in interacting with an onlooking world. You see, the, the gospel is, is very comprehensive. It's not just an idea, but it's a force. It's Jesus in the flesh, and he is here to change you. So many people understand Christianity just as a, a box to check on the census form. So the, the census, people come to your door. They're going to ask you a few questions. I, I'm not a Muslim. I guess I'm not an atheist. My grandma was a Christian. I, I guess I'm just going to check that box. But there's very little dynamics or, or power that's actually at work in you, changing you. And what we're going to see here in Ephesians is that God wants to change you. It's not just a box, but the Spirit wants to renew you, wants to make you look like Jesus. And for this morning, 
as you put on Jesus, as you put on a whole Jesus, he wants to transform how you interact with the world. He wants you to become the kind of person that knows the truth and uses it in such a way, not just to prove a point, but to actually win people to Jesus. One of my all-time favorite sayings is from Jack Miller. I think Tim Keller gets a lot more uh, press for using the quote, but it's actually from, from Jack Miller, that cheer up. You're a far worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine, but you're far more loved in Christ than you ever dared to hope. Those two statements, those two truth statements of judgment, of grace, and sin, and salvation, those ought to be the two marks of truth that we are holding out towards the world. And you must be the kind of person that as you put on Jesus, again, that's how Jesus ministered to the woman at the well, as you put that on, that is your mark for how we interact with the world. And you need to hold both of those in tension. The truth of sin, the truth of salvation. And most people only get one aspect right. And so there are, there are the, the truth of sin people. Ah, I just look out in the world, it's, everything's terrible. But government's terrible and all the schools are terrible and worst of all, my, my neighbors are terrible. Ah, just sin is everywhere. It's true, sin is everywhere, and I'm not going to debate you on the schools or the academies. Or the, I'm not even going to debate that. But if all you are is a ranter that just uses truth to discourage and bash people, that's not very helpful. That is not what Jesus did. But then there's also the other flip side. Those who say, well, I don't need to talk about the truth of sin. I just want to talk about the truth of grace. Jesus just loves everybody at all times and all ways. But the problem there is that if Jesus loves everybody exactly as they are, then what did Jesus actually come to do? It's the problem of mainline Protestant Christianity. As Richard Niebert says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So yes, is it true that Jesus loves? That, that is true. But unless you hold that intention with the truth of sin, then his love is never going to mean anything. To be committed to truth is, means that we are going to be the kind of people that are committed to the truth of talking about judgment and also talking about grace. We need to do both well. So here's really the main question for this morning. So take all that distilled into one main takeaway. Are you speaking about other people the way that Christ has truthfully spoken about you. When you talk about other people, maybe you just think about other people in your own mind, are you talking about them in the way that Christ has talked about you? Fallen, but forgiven. Sinner, but saved. The world does not need more angry people to go on rants. People that just in the name of truth just vent and vent, nor does the world need more mainline Christianity, the kind of Christianity that just turns a blind eye to sin. There's no wrong in the world, just, just love people. Just turn on the news and you'll see that there's lots of sin. What the world needs is people that are committed to the full relational truth of the gospel. This otherworldly truth that holds both judgment and grace together 
And the only way that there is going to be otherworldly truth in this present world is to put on the clothes of him, to put on the clothes of Jesus, who actually comes from a different world. So there is truth. The truth is not distant. The truth is not a shadow. The truth has come to us in Christ. Truth is incarnated. Truth is found in a person. We can know truth like we know a man. So put on that truth. And day by day, one degree of glory at a time, you will be conformed into the kind of person that is able to speak the truth of judgment and grace. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son Jesus, who is the definition of truth, we thank you that he truthfully speaks to us, that sees our sin, does not just turn a blind eye to our sin, but truthfully points out our sin and also truthfully reminds us of his sacrifice on the cross. Guilt and gratitude, sin and salvation. Father, we thank you for the way that your son sees us. And now we do pray that as we put on the clothes of Jesus, that we would be the kind of people that uses truth in the same way. It's not use truth just to beat others up, but uses truth in such a way that points them to the glory of salvation found in your son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now. It's in the very good name of Jesus we pray. Amen.